This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So my name is Asif Manvi, and to me, family is your origin story. It's uh, where you come from. It's what shapes you. It's who you are, even though you don't always consciously know it. It's the reasons that you're extraordinary and the reasons that you are incredibly dysfunctional and screwed up. It's the origin point at which you decide what the world is about and uh, and what and, and your place in it. Hello, this is We Are Family, and today we're speaking to actor, comedian, podcaster, producer, and writer Asif Manvi. And you'll know him as a correspondent, of course, on The Daily Show, and he's also the lead actor, writer, and producer of the web series Halal and the Family, as well as the HBO series The Brink. He's the author of the book No Land's Man. He has a podcast, Lost at the Smithsonian with Asif Manvi, and he's currently playing Ben Shakir in the CBS drama Evil. But you've also seen him on TV in the series Younger, among many other things. He's now dad to son Ishan with his wife, Shaifali Puri. You guys have a beautiful family from what I've seen from afar. Asif, welcome to We Are Family. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we're talking now, I I can hear the dulcet tones of of a toddler in the background. I know. I know. My dad got him this uh, car that he can uh, sit on and... I push him around on it, and it's basically every morning he wakes up, and it's just the first words are now, car, car, car. (laughs) All he wants to do is just ride around on this car. So all I do all day long now, my back is is out because of this. (laughs) The car is really the most important thing to him. Like He looks at me, (laughs) and he used to say, Dada, and now he just looks at me and goes, car. You may hear a horn and the, and the screaming of car in the background, so I apologize. Oh, no. Well, it would not be a parent's uh, podcast episode if we didn't have some kind of <laughs> child sounds in the background. We, we're all there all the time. But yeah, it feels like you need to build some sort of like lawnmower con- uh, handle contraption to be able to push the car or something like that. Yes, that would be <laughs> great, right? Yeah, I'm hoping that by the time he turns five, I still have all of my muscles available to me. Like I literally, I feel like I'm, I'm throwing my back out all the time. I'm like lift. I was the other day, I was like, my elbow was hurting. I was like, what the hell? Cause now he's also at that age where he, it's like juggling. When I pick him up, he doesn't just sit still or, or, you know, be mm-hmm. still when I'm holding him. Now he's like going in 45 different directions. So oh, it's yeah. kind of like, it takes a lot of core work. What is he like? One and a half right now? He's about to be one and a half. He's like one. He's just okay. like pushing. Yeah, he's just like at that point now where he's deciding. Like I can push the envelope and see what happens here. If I throw all my toys off the balcony, what will happen? Will they go pick them up, or will they just let them lay in the hallway? 
<laughs> right, right. They're testing their boundaries. And uh, I've seen they've, they've exactly. done these like um, child psychologists do these like like charts where they map out these, you know, one and a half year olds and, and when they're kind of running around playing and they're just all over the place. It's like no standing still. <laughs> oh, yeah. He doesn't want to eat anymore. Like we literally chase him around with food. Yeah. Because he won't sit still to eat. And so it's like, I feel like um, me and my wife are, are just, I'm on one side of the room. She's on the other side of the room. We both have like a piece of food on on a fork or a spoon. And whichever way he goes, we shove the food in his mouth. <laughs> and my wife will be like, he hasn't eaten. What are we going to do? I'm like, ah, he'll eat. He'll eat eventually. Like he's got to eat. He's right. going to like, you know, and, and so, but you do, you have that stress of like, I'm somehow, um, neglecting my parental uh, response. And I have one. I have one job. It's just to keep him alive, you know. And it's like if if I don't feed him, that's kind of one hundred and one, you know. So he's one and a half now. He is. He really is is a um a, a child of the pandemic. Can you talk me a little bit through his the whole journey of him coming into the world, what that's been like, and what it's been like the last sort of year and a half as you've adjusted to parenthood? It was bizarre because I feel like. He's our only child, and 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 I'm a first time parent, and and so I don't know what it's like to have a child not in a pandemic, you know. So I imagine it's very different. I mean, I think one of the big differences for us was that he didn't get to see any of his family. Like in a normal world, my mother in law would have been here, my dad would have been here, like my my sister and. And we would have just had family here. and Right, that village. It would have been a village. And, and I think that, I do think the human babies are meant to be raised in community. And one of the things that I think children of this pandemic have been deprived of is that community. You know, the good thing was that we just got to spend a lot of time with him. Like he got our undivided attention because neither me or my wife were going anywhere. And, you know, we mm-hmm. were just with him 24-7. And so in a weird way, that was good. I felt like I got, as a father, I got a lot of real quality time with him in those first six months. Yeah. That I might not have gotten had the world not been the way it was. I do think it's been one of the most stressful stressful times to be a parent. And then for you to learn what it is to be a parent in the, in the midst of this is an added challenge. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not you feel like fatherhood has changed you and, and in what ways? And do you think that you're the dad that you thought you'd, you'd turn out to be? I think fatherhood has definitely changed me. It is by far one of the most transformative things that happens to a person. And look, I'm a guy who, you know, I'm an actor, right? So like, I'm like this narcissistic, you know, <laughs> self-involved guy who basically was all about my career and all that stuff. And and then you have a child, and suddenly something it's it's fascinating and it's kind of amazing, like how this you sort of this DNA change that happens inside of you where you suddenly have to take you take care of this creature, this human mm-hmm. being that has arrived and is helpless and, and, and so much of your, I mean, I, I find that things don't matter as much in the way that they used to. And also like, I'm incredibly emotional now. Like I mm-hmm. cry all the time, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm just like, inc- 
Like it, it just gets you into, and also like I'm an older parent, so mm-hmm. I think there's always that feeling as well of like, oh, I, I created a human being, and I'm older, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I want to be there for him, and I and I'm trying to. So now it's like, oh my god, I gotta really stay healthy, and I gotta. <laughs> be around for as long as I can. It's not just about you anymore. It's now very much about another person. Yeah, to to be here, to be here for him, you know. Um, One of the things I noticed right away was that I could not hear. I mean, it was was already devastating when he was born. Like, it was all that stuff with the kids on the border and all that stuff in mm-hmm. the news and, and I can't hear anything about children or anything bad happening to children and maybe lots of parents talk about this. Oh yeah, this yeah, idea yeah. That, you need like a trigger warning that, at all times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like <laughs> like if there's anything happening to children, I'm just incredibly like, no, no, yes. no, I don't I, I can't even deal with that, you know? If, and 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 just I'll I'll cry at commercials with kids in them or something. And and it's just it's that. It's 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 just really getting in touch. And also just this feeling of of just being present with him in a way that I don't think I have been often. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting. My wife said to me the other day, she's like, when you do something and he laughs, your face lights up in a way that I don't ever see. But it's true. Like I realized like, yeah, like when he laughs at like a goofy face that I make or just something if I get him to laugh, it's the greatest thing. It's like, it makes me so happy. <laughs> you know? He's like, he's your best audience. He's your like audience of your life. But he's not always. Sometimes he's like, yeah, I'm not laughing. You know, <laughs> he's like, sometimes I'm like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, okay. What else you got? When you're doing it as a performance, it's like, there's a, there's a coolness to it all, you know? Mm-hmm. In the times I've done stand up, and I don't do stand up all the time, but when I, I know when the audience is going to laugh, and it's a, it's a little bit more mathematical, right? Like I know, like okay, this is where they're going to laugh, and 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 I kind of feel like I'm in control of the whole situation, right? Right. Whereas with Ishan, I never know. Also, he's at that age now where the thing that made him laugh three days ago is not the thing that makes him laugh anymore. <laughs> he's like, bring in the car. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, I'm trying material. And he's like, Dad, that material is like three days old. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like that's from like, that's like from Tuesday, you know? It's it's Friday, dude. Right. He's like, I've already seen that sketch on the proverbial YouTube channel of my brain. So move on right yeah so for me i'm like well you loved this a couple of days ago yeah. this was like your favorite bit That's and so now funny. he's like nah not so much yeah and i'm like i gotta come up with a new bit i feel like it's always going to be like that too so on this podcast we talk about family as well as parenting and we talk so often about how our own upbringings influence us as parents so i'd love to hear a little bit about yours I, you were born in india but then you moved to england when you were tiny like one years old right and then yeah. you were brought up in bradford can you paint us a picture a little bit of what your childhood was like and and how you feel like it might have influenced your your parenting today it's interesting my childhood you know obviously like you said i moved to england when i was a year old and my parents moved to england i didn't do it on my own I just went with them because at that point I I had to go with them wherever they went. And then one of the things that happened to me as a child 
was that I was sent away to live with my grandmother in Bahrain when I was a year and a half because my parents moved to the UK and they were in the north of England and really just trying to start. They were very young. You know, they were like really young. They were, I mean, not really young, but they were like 23 and 25, but they were also starting a brand new life. Like, like my parents, when they had me, they just, they moved to a new country. They were starting out. They didn't know what the future was held. Mm-hmm. They, they had left their country and their home and their family and their parents and all that stuff. And they were kind of in this new world. My mother was working in a factory. My dad was working in a university and, and they couldn't really take care of a child. So they sent me back to live with my grandmother in Bahrain. And I lived with my grandmother until I was three years old and then came back to the UK from Bahrain. You were so young. Do you have any memories? I don't have any memories of actually going to Bahrain, but I do. My One of my earliest memories is at three years old, coming back to uh, Heathrow Airport in London and meeting my parents for the first time. And I had forgotten who they were. Mm. And I didn't recognize my mother anymore. And so I remember my grandmother being like, this is your mom. And right. I was like, who is this? Who is this woman? Wow. And, yeah. I, and I remember her in a white sari and she's like kneeling down. She's reaching out for me and I'm hiding behind my grandmother's, um, her sari, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of being like, I don't want to go to this person and I don't know who she is. But I basically just forgot who my parents were. Well, you couldn't FaceTime, obviously, so... Right, there was no FaceTime back then. Like, I think one thing that's different for me is that I had a child much later in life than my parents did. And I, um, the pros and the cons of being an older parent uh, are, are there, but one of the, the things that I think has been good for me is that, like, I was finally ready to have a child. I probably couldn't have had a child in my 20s and 30s. You know, I think I was trying Mm -hmm. to figure out too much stuff. And so, you know, I didn't have a child until I was in my 50s. But I think that I am just so much more available and present and ready to do this. You know, when my parents were, was they were just trying to start their life. They were trying to figure out what to do. And I I don't have that. And, and, And so, and I also think that, I'm very much aware of like what happened to me psychologically and how it affected the rest of my life in terms of being sent away from my mother yeah, and then being brought back to her. And, and I think that those abandonment issues sort mm-hmm. of plague me for most of my adult life. Right. So for me, I'm very aware of raising him with a deep sense of security around that, you know, and not, and right. not, wanting him to ever feel like we're not there for him. And in a way that I maybe didn't have that sense of of security. Right. We talk about that a lot in, in psychology, the attachment styles and secure attachment. And that's like the goal, right? To just to, to raise a child with that really secure attachment to other humans. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm hoping that that, I mean, I'll fuck them up in other ways. But <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I, say. I always say as parents, you know, we got to give them something to talk about in therapy. So then how the rest, you know, you were three years old. Did you, 
did you grow closer to your parents? What was your relationship like with them after you'd moved back? I mean, I imagine so. Yes. I mean, I did. I grew, you know, they, they were my parents. And did you stay in touch with your grandmother or see, did you see your grandmother a lot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandmother until, yeah. I mean, then my grandmother moved back and they went back, you know, and, and then my memories of my life as a teenager and, and young adults and all that are, are similar to everyone else's, I imagine, you know, in terms of like, these are my parents, but the stuff that I think it did, like whatever I dealt with didn't come up until much later when I was getting into relationships and I was dealing with that kind of stuff, you know, that's when all that, those things reared their head in, you know, they, they lived deep in a kind of nonverbal unconscious place for me. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So you've talked before about how you said your family had kind of given up on you getting married and finding the one. <laughs> so talk to me about how you met your wife. When? Did, how did you know you were ready for marriage? I. It's funny. Sometimes in my life, I've had to do things in order to know that I'm ready for it. You know, like it's like, I don't think I knew I was ready for marriage until I got married <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs> right. I guess, was parenthood sort of similar, do you feel like? Parenthood is similar. I didn't know that I was wanted to be a dad until I had a baby. With my wife, it was less about, quote, unquote, getting married as mm-hmm. much as it was. I knew that, like, I had met this remarkable woman, and I didn't want to see her get away. And You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think it was that. I think for me it was like I just didn't want to lose her. And I knew that I would. And I think that I had probably fucked up enough relations. Can I swear? I can't. Oh, go for it. Yes, this is a podcast for adults. Sorry, it's for for families, but it's a filthy, filthy podcast. It's filthy. Yes, yes, yes. I think I had fucked up enough relationships in the past and wasted time you know, going down roads that I probably shouldn't have gone down to, you know, mm-hmm. and, and didn't, and didn't feel like, and so when I met Shafali, I think it was a, I was at a place where I was really like, okay, I want to, I really think I do want to meet someone, you know, I think mm-hmm. Shafali and I, I joke about the fact that Shafali and I both had commitment issues. And, <laughs> and so we decided to get married. <laughs> because uh, neutralize you know, each other's yeah, it's issues. Like because yeah because you know you just want to find someone who has this you know they say about relationships right it's like it's like you're not going to find the perfect person you're just going to find the person who is complementary to your dysfunction <laughs> that's great you know and that's really what it is it's like you're not perfect they're not perfect as long as your two imperfections mm-hmm. work together 
that's fine. That's it. And so I think in, in, in our case, it was like we both had commitment issues and we both decided we were going to like take a chance with this person because I don't think, I think, I mean, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask her why she <laughs> married me, but, but I married her because I just didn't want her to get away. And, and there was a moment in when we were sort of, you know, we, we spent a good deal of time kind of sort of, are we friends? Are we lovers? Are we more, you know? And, and I remember yeah. she was like, I don't know if I want to date an actor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And, and I was like, I don't know if I want to date someone who doesn't want to date an actor. And you know, she has a really impressive job. T- tell me what she does again. She's a brilliant woman. Right now, she's taking some time off from her career to mm-hmm. to be a mom. But she is, uh, you know, she has run organizations. She was mm-hmm. running the global initiative at the Nike Foundation, dealing with young girls in in third world countries, and mm-hmm. and and. Uh, it was called the girl effect. And, mm. you know, she started a, a, an organization called scientists without borders. She was a lawyer by training. She's like this very uh, accomplished woman, you know, and, and has done a lot of different things in her life. And when we met, we went to a party one night and somebody came over and asked for her number uh-huh. and she gave her number to this guy. Oh, no. And we, at this point have been hanging out for a while, and, you know, so right. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. And suddenly, like, dumb me, like, I was like, oh, wait, like, she might date someone. <laughs> you know, right. Like, like I, could like, I think, I, I think, I don't think I really put it together. I was like, I just saw her in this moment, like, give her number to a guy and him, like, ask for her number and her give her number to him and be like, call me, you know. And then I realized, like, oh, shit, like, yeah, Asif. You need to step up, otherwise you're going <laughs> to lose this woman right. to some guy in a bar. And, um, and so at that point, I I believe I said, I think I was like, you just gave that guy your number. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah. And then I think she was like, yeah. What do you care? Yeah. What are you going <laughs> to do about it? <laughs> right. And then I, and, and and then I was like, huh? And then I and then I was like, well, I, I I'm, I'm kind of jealous. Mm. And she was like, oh. And then that opened the door to that whole thing. And then, and then we started dating and then never looked back. Like it was like, it was one of those, it's a very sort of rom-com moment. I love that though. It, you had what looked like a beautiful wedding. Uh, it yeah. was an interfaith wedding, Hindu Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what I'm curious about is you, you both have these two faiths. How do they come together when raising your son? Are there values and traditions that you're trying to pass on to him from your respective religions? Or are you very religious as a family? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, you know, there's no way to sort of navigate this because neither one of us have done it before. And so I think the, the, the agreement that we have is that he will be exposed to both of our faiths. Sh- Shafali is from a Hindu family, but not religious really not very religious at all i come from a muslim family i'm not really religious either but maybe i'm i'm not so anti-organized religion as much as my wife is but but it's interesting when you have kids that becomes even if you're not a religious person suddenly you're like 
wait, but I'm Muslim and you're Hindu. So what do we do? Like, like, it's like, we never, it never came up in our dating life. It never came up in like, even when we really got married, we were mm-hmm. sort of representative of both faiths and in the wedding and stuff. But then suddenly you have a child and you're like, Oh, like, do we take him to the, to the mosque? And then we also take him to the temple or does he, oh, you know, how do we, how do we navigate this thing? And suddenly there's an ownership. Suddenly you feel like you're more religious than you actually are because you feel like there's this thing you have to impart upon right. your offspring. This responsibility again. Yeah. <laughs> Pressure. And it feels like a legacy thing. For example, actually it came up on his first birthday. So we have slightly different traditions. Mm-hmm. around the first birthdays. So we did a little thing where we did a little Muslim ceremony and then we did a little Hindu thing, a ceremony. So I think it's, I think it's, it's always that it's just, it's just making sure he's exposed to both sides of his, his religious heritage. Yeah, no, I can totally appreciate that. Also, this is related, I feel like, but you've been very passionate in the past about the visibility of South Asian and Muslim men on on TV and in cinema. Can you talk a little bit about like why this is important to you? And do you feel like it's even more important now that you're thinking about your son growing up in, in this world? You know, I realize, you know, we've come a long way in the last 30 years in terms of representation around South Asians and people of color in general in Hollywood. And I think those stories are important because I, when I was a kid growing up, I never saw anyone who looked like me on TV, in films, in, you know, and as growing up in the West, right? Like I grew up mm-hmm. in the UK and then I grew up in, in America. There was no representation. And, and many people of my generation have talked about this, this idea that like what I ended up doing a lot was sort of aping white culture and and kind of trying to basically be a white person. You know, I went to school in high school and college in Florida, and and I didn't really have any South Asian friends until I got to New York. How old were you when you moved to America? You were like a teenager, right? I was 16 when I moved to America. And then I was uh, in my 20s, early 20s, when I got to New York. and. Even then, it wasn't until I did my one-man show, Sakina's Restaurant, Mm -hmm. and that was when I was 32. Mm. That's the first time I started finding a South Asian community of my own that was not like my parents' friends. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, I had my friends, and then I had the friends of my parents' friends who were all Indian, and their kids who I just inherited, whether I liked them or not, because we would just go to these Indian parties and then Mm -hmm. just become friends with these other kids that were Indian, like us, you know? But they didn't go to my school. You know, they weren't the same age as me. All my friends were essentially white people. And it wasn't until I did Sakina's Restaurant, I was like in my early 30s, that I actually, because all these South Asians started coming to see my show, Mm-hmm. Out of that, I started making friends with other South Asians for the mm-hmm. first time that were my adult friends, like people who I, you know, chose mm-hmm. in that way. So in that way, the world has changed for my son. 
That leads me to my last question that we ask everybody. But what are your kind of general kind of hopes and dreams for your family or for the next few years? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's a hard one because it's like, I just, I just want him to be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure every parent says this. I just want him to be the best version of himself that he can be. You know, I just, I don't, I, I, I mean, I'm going to try to like give him as few hangups as possible about things, but I'm sure I'm going to fail. You know, I think one of the, one of the big realizations that one comes to as a parent is that there's an inevitability of failure. Totally. You know, failure is just inevitable. And I say this to my wife all the time, you know, like we are as hard as we try, we're going to fuck it up. And so you just try to fuck it up as the least that you think you can, you know, because otherwise we wouldn't be human, you know? And so I think that's what it is. I think it's just try to like not fuck it up too badly. And so that he's actually able to be a um, productive and happy member of, of society. Totally. I, I totally agree with that. And if he's, and if he's achieves beyond that, then great. Well, Asif Mambi, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. We are family. This has been a great chat. Best of luck to your family and everything. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with actor and comedian Asif Mambi. Next time, you'll hear from the parents of TikTok sensations Charlie and Dixie D'Amelio about what it's like when your kids, your family, and then your entire life goes viral. Be sure to follow We Are Family on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at parents.com slash wearefamilypodcast. We Are Family is presented by me, Julia Dennison, and produced by Sam Walker. Editing is by Vincent Cachione, and thanks also to the rest of our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, and Danielle Roth. We'll see you back here next week for more We Are Family.